Within days of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. back in 1968, uh, race riots had broken out in major cities across the country. Race riots. But in one small town in Iowa, a totally white town, there was a third grade teacher by the name of Jane Elliott, and uh, teacher Jane decided to teach her kids about the evils of racism. And so she used a very simple experiment, and the experiment was so successful that she repeated it the next year and the year after that, and with every incoming class of third graders. ABC News heard about it. They sent a camera crew, and they made a TV special out of it. Here's the way the experiment worked. Uh, Teacher Jane said to her class one day, we're going to divide you up into blue-eyed children and brown-eyed children. And because I'm blue-eyed, I want to tell you blue-eyeds are superior. Uh, We're just smarter. We're better. You know, the blue-eyed kids are better behaved. And she said, uh, these are facts. Nobody can argue with them. Everybody knows what I'm telling you. And because of this, blue-eyed kids are going to get special privileges. You get to play on the playground equipment a little longer, and there were other privileges. And then she turned to the brown-eyeds, and she said, and you brown-eyed kids, I want you to stay off the playground equipment. Stay away from the blue-eyeds, okay? And you're not to drink from the drinking fountain in the hallway of the school because you're, well, you're slow to learn. You're troublemakers, and everybody knows this. Now, now she did this for one day, and then she assessed the impact that this sort of discrimination had on her kids. And not surprisingly, the blue-eyed kids were walking around with haughty attitudes, and and the brown-eyed kids were struggling with feelings of inferiority and pent-up anger and frustration, and uh, even their academic grades started to slide in one day, in one day. ABC News captured all this. They made a special out of it. You can watch it today on YouTube. It's called A Class Divided. Now, our topic for today is is racism. How many of you know racism is a huge problem in our country today, right? You you watch the news, obvious. Uh, We're in a third week of a six-part series called Back to Plan A, God's Countercultural Wisdom. Okay, Back to Plan A. We're looking at several very important contemporary issues where our culture has drifted further and further away from biblical values, further and further away from God's plan A. And so the goal of this series is not only to call us back to plan A, but to encourage those of us who are Christ followers to become promoters, advocates for plan A in our culture. And that's because we love people and we know that God's best for people is his plan A. So today's plan A topic, as I said a moment ago, is racism. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. This is the classic passage in the entire Bible on racism, so please don't miss it. Take your Bible out, get the outline from your program, and jot down what God has to say to us as we look at his holy word. And while you're looking and uh, trying to find Ephesians 2, let me give you a definition for racism. This comes from a book by pastor and theologian John Piper. Now, John Piper's a white dude, but for over 30 years he pastored a multi-ethnic church in the inner city of Minneapolis. And then when, when he was 50 years old, he and his wife, who had already raised three white boys, 
decided to adopt a little black girl. So he has seen racism up close and personal. This is his definition of racism. Comes from his book, Bloodlines, Race, Cross, and the Christian. And uh, as you know, I like to do background reading for my sermons, read a number of books on racism. Unfortunately, most books have, have strengths and weaknesses. So the strength of John Piper's book, it's great theology, good uh, biblical uh, exposition, but a little weaker on the practical application. So I'm going to give you one recommend, recommendation for a book you'll want to read on racism in, in just a few moments here. Uh, Piper's book is a good book, but not quite as balanced as the book that I'll be suggesting to you. So here's his definition for racism. He says, it's an explicit or implicit belief or practice that qualitatively values one race over other races. Let me repeat that so it can sink in. Racism is an explicit or implicit belief or practice that qualitatively values one race over other races. Let me say two more introductory things about, about racism here that you, you want to jot down. So the first is this. Sometimes racism is deliberate and cruel, but, but, but other times it's, it's just unintentional. Okay, it's, it's still damaging, but we're unaware of it. Okay, the, the second introductory truth I want to say is this. Sometimes racism is personal, and other times it's embedded in the institutions, the systems of our country, whether that be education or uh, criminal justice or business embedded in the system. So let me tell you a story about unintentional institutional racism. And this story comes from the book I want to recommend to you. The book is called Being White. Being white, finding our place in a multi-ethnic world. And I know the title makes it sound as if it's a book strictly for white folks. It's not. It's a book about racism for everybody. In the book, the two authors tell the story of Holly. True story. Holly is a kindergarten teacher. And every year, the state sends to her class an educational tester. He, he needs to assess where the kids are at academically, if they need, you know, if they're struggling and they, they need help. So, so the first year that Holly's a kindergarten teacher, uh, he flunks everybody in her class but one. None of them pass. Now, Holly's a bit disconcerted about this because she knows she's got some really bright kids in her kid kindergarten class. So she asks the tester, how did you assess this? And he said, well, well I, I uh, you know, was trying to test whether they can follow some simple sequences. And Holly said, such as? And he said, well, I asked him the steps in making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and none of them could explain it to me. So the light bulb immediately went on in Holly's mind, and she says, well, I'll tell you why that is. All of the kids in my class are Hispanic. See, none of them brings a PB&J to lunch. They all bring burritos. So why don't you go back and test them again and ask them the steps in making a burrito? All but one of the kids passed. They, all, they, they were not academic failures. They did not need special ed. He just asked him the wrong question. See, sometimes racism is deliberate and cruel. Sometimes it's just, it's just unintentional. Sometimes it's personal. Other times it's systemic. It's embedded in our institutions. So what is God's plan A with respect 
to racism? What's God's alternative? Paul gives it to us in three steps in the passage we're looking at today. We're going to begin at verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. First step is this, jot it down, understand alienation. Understand alienation. Paul says, therefore, remember, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Okay, the Apostle Paul is writing a group of Christ followers in the city of Ephesus, many of whom came from a Gentile upbringing. Now, as you know, Christianity had its roots in Judaism. But, but at this point in time, the good news about Jesus was spreading to non-Jews, to, to Gentiles, and this was creating a problem. The, the, these Gentile Christ followers were being made to feel like second-class citizens because they didn't have the rich religious background of their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so they were referred to, as you, you saw in the, in the passage, as the uncircumcised. Now, circumcision, if you know your Old Testament history, it was first given to Abraham back in the Bible's opening book of Genesis as a physical sign that Abraham and his descendants had been chosen by God. They were God's special people. Now, the minute I say that, you may be thinking, well, why would God do that? Well, why would God favor one group of people over other groups? Wouldn't that automatically lead to racism, like Teacher Jane and her blue-eyed kids? I mean, suddenly you got the chosens and the not-chosens. You got the circumcised and the not-circumcised. Although, believe me, nobody was standing in line for the privilege of getting circumcised. All right. So why did God choose the Jews to be his special people? Here's what we need to understand, friends. God's goal was not, was not to alienate other people, just the opposite. When God called Abraham and gave him the sign of circumcision, it was for the sake of setting him apart for a mission. And the mission... Listen to me now, the mission was to point everybody everywhere to the one true God. In fact, God told Abraham when he gave him this mission in Genesis 12, verse 3, he said, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's your mission. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Go for it. Unfortunately, Abraham and his people neglected their calling. You know, they, they treated their chosenness as if it were a matter of favoritism, not a matter of mission. They, they haughtily despised the people around them. Back when Paul wrote the epistle of Ephesians, Jews commonly referred to Gentiles as dogs. One scholar writes that in, in Paul's day, many Jews believed that God had created Gentiles as fire, as fuel rather, for the fires of hell. So you, you did not allow your Jewish son to marry a, a, a Gentile girl. If, you, if he did, then you did a funeral. He was as good as dead. No, no Jew was to help a Gentile mother in childbirth because that would be helping to bring a Gentile into the world. 
So as the Apostle Paul opens today's text, Ephesians 2, verses 11 and 12, he points out how alienated Jews, Gentiles, were from Jews. And not only from Jews, Gentiles were alienated from the one true God whom the Jews had been keeping to themselves. You know, look again at verse 12. There, there are five, five phrases in this verse describing what the Gentiles had been missing out on because of their alienation. If you got your own Bible, you could just put a number by each of these phrases. Phrase number one, you were separate from Christ. Please understand, Christ was, was not a name in the first century. It wasn't like Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. It was, it was a title. It was the Greek equivalent for, for the, the Hebrew Messiah, the Savior, whom God had promised the world, but nobody had bothered to tell the Gentiles about the Savior. Number two, he says Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Nobody was inviting them to become part of God's special people, spiritually speaking. Number three, Gentiles were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. They knew absolutely nothing about all the things that God had promised his people in the pages of Scripture. Number four, Gentiles were without hope. Without hope, and that was because, number five, they were without God in the world. They had their pagan gods, but those gods were false and powerless. Nobody had introduced them to the one true living God who could forgive their sins and welcome them into his family and transform their lives and give them eternal life. And so the Gentile Christ followers, to whom Paul was writing this epistle of Ephesians, they knew what it, would, what it felt like to be alienated. They knew what it felt like to be alienated. Of course, all that changed for them when they heard the good news about Jesus and they surrendered their lives to him, and now they belong to God's family. However, they could still remember what alienation had felt like B.C., before Christ. They could still remember. In fact, that's a very important word in this text, remember, if you've got your own Bible, circle it. It appears at the beginning of verse 11 and then again at verse 12. There, there's something here that Paul does not want these Gentile Christ followers to forget. Paul does not want them to, to, to forget, listen now, what it felt like to be alienated. Paul doesn't, he, he doesn't say to these guys, listen, I know you were alienated in the past, but you know, get over it, move on. No, he says, remember, remember. In fact, this, this command is accentuated by the fact, first of all, that in the first three chapters of the epistle of Ephesians, there is no other imperative, no other directive, no other command but this one. It's like a blinking red light. Remember, remember. In fact, throughout the New Testament, in no place else are we told to focus on, to ruminate on, to reflect on, to remember our life before Christ. Just the opposite. We're, we're told, yeah, forget about that. Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 13, here's how I operate. I forget what lies behind and I press on to what lies ahead. So why in Ephesians 2 does Paul say, remember this? You know, why are Gentile Christ followers encouraged to remember their former alienation, Ephesians 2? Why would God want us to keep in mind what it felt like to be on the outside looking in? 
You know, I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that remembering our former lostness makes us more appreciative of God's love and his grace. But another benefit of remembering, friends, and don't miss this, is that it sensitizes us to those who feel alienated. It sensitizes us to those who feel alienated. That alienation may be a spiritual alienation like it is here in Ephesians 2, kept at a distance from a relationship with God. It may be an economic alienation. It may be a social alienation. They're not part of the in-group, but we are. It may be a rational, racial alienation, which is what we're considering today. But, but, but Christ followers of all people ought to be able and willing to understand alienation. We should get it. Why? Because that used to be us. So, so how well do we understand alienation? How about racial alienation, especially those of us who are part of the white majority? You know, 30 years ago, when we were getting ready to start Christ Community Church, Sue and, I, Sue and I asked the six couples who were launching the church with us to undertake a special project. We had created a promotional brochure and we wanted to hand deliver it to 10,000 houses in the community in St. Charles. And so we asked these six couples to give their weekends for two months to go out and ring doorbells and invite people to this newfangled church. And one of the couples came up to us immediately after our meeting and they said, are you, are you sure you want us to do this? And I thought, well, it's not surprising that somebody's going to beg off. I mean, this is a huge job. Ringing all those doorbells, walking all those streets, extending all those invitations. And I said, of course I want you to do it. Why, would you, why wouldn't you do it? And they looked at me and their eyes dropped for a moment and they said, well... Um, we're Philippine. Our skin is brown. If you haven't noticed, this is a pretty white community. By the way, I looked it up afterwards. Uh, St. Charles was 96.7% white at the time. We're talking hostess Twinkie, okay? One big hostess Twinkie. And they said, if we go door to door and invite people to church, we might turn them off. They might not come. Wow. Yeah, I never even thought of that. I mean, I, I, these are friends of mine. I'm looking at them. They're professionals. He's an engineer and she's a doctor. Did I learn a lesson that day? You know, those of us who are part of the white majority, we don't begin to understand the alienation that people of color have experienced in our culture. You know, but it's time we learned. It's time we, we made a deliberate effort to understand. Raleigh Washington is the co-author of a book on racial reconciliation called Breaking Down Walls. Now this would have been my first choice of book to recommend to you. The only problem is it's out of print. It was written 20 years ago. It was an award winner at the, at the time. Uh, and you could still get it used on Amazon. If you're going to read one book, I'd encourage you, go to Amazon, order a used copy for yourself. Uh, Raleigh is a black man, co-wrote the book with a white dude. He finished up a career in the military and then decided to go to grad school to become a pastor. And that's where Raleigh and I met each other, where we became buds. 
He's older and wiser than I am, but I want you to listen what he has to say about the importance of whites learning to understand blacks. He says, in general, African Americans understand the typical white person's attitudes and responses much better than white people understand the blacks' attitude. It's a skill developed out of necessity. Blacks have had to learn how to satisfy the expectations of white teachers, white employers, white landlords, white government officials, including the police, merely to survive. Most white people have never had to understand blacks to that same depth, so it's easy for them to make social blunders, and the blunders often come across as insensitivity. Understand alienation. Now, this is going to require for those of us who are white that we get over our tendency to be defensive. Maybe the minute we hear the accusation racism, our, our, our knee-jerk reaction is, I'm not racist, and I'm sick and tired of getting blamed for American slavery. For goodness sakes, it ended 150 years ago. Like, how am I responsible for that? Yeah, I can identify with that defensiveness. You know, I, I look at it. My, my ancestors didn't own slaves. They didn't even immigrate to this country to the, to the 20th century. But you know what? During my lifetime, which is not that long, dur during my lifetime, blacks were relegated to the backs of buses. I was a kid growing up when Martin Luther King Jr. was was preaching, didn't understand much of what he had to say back then, but I, I knew that blacks were prohibited from drinking in certain drinking fountains, discriminated against at work, kept out of certain neighborhoods. And I look back and I think if those things had happened to me or to my mom and dad, how would I feel? See, understand alienation. Understand alienation. N number two, underscore reconciliation. Okay, this ought to be our emphasis. We ought to underscore reconciliation. Go back to Ephesians 2. Paul continues to address the problem of racism, and he describes a kind of wall, okay, a wall that keeps people apart. He says it's a wall that Jesus can tear down, just like the Berlin Wall got torn down in 1989, that wall that separated East Germans from West Germans. Jesus can tear down this wall Let's take a look at what the wall is and how Jesus brings it down, picking it up at verse 13 where we left off. Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, circle wall there, by setting aside in his flesh the laws with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far away, peace to those of you who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now keep your Bible open, go back to verse 14, read it a moment ago. The last line of the verse, Paul mentions the wall that Jesus brought down. 
He calls it the dividing wall of hostility because this is a wall that kept people apart. Once this wall came down, people who had been at odds with each other were able to be reconciled. They experienced peace. A word that pops up three times in the the short section of verses I just read to you. Peace. They were able to experience oneness. The word one pops up four times in the verses I just read to you. Now, now this dividing wall was not made of concrete slabs like the Berlin Wall. So what was it made of? Go back to the text, verse 15, after Paul says that Jesus destroyed the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside the law with its commands and regulations. So what was the wall? It was the law with its commands and regulations. Let me explain. You know, God gave the Jews, his Old Testament people, all sorts of laws to follow. You know, there were laws about offering animal sacrifices and payment for sins. There were laws about choosing priests who would act as your intermediary with God. There were laws about circumcision and kosher diet and special clothing, all of which were external signs that you belonged to God's chosen people. Those laws became a wall around the Jews, a wall that separated them from all other peoples. And that, that wall was actually symbolized by the layout of the Jewish temple grounds. Okay, the, the, the temple was built on an elevated platform. Outside the temple, there was a court for Jewish priests. You got to the edge of that court and there was a, a wall. On the other side of the wall was a court for Jewish men. That extended for some distance and it was, it was boundaried by another wall. On the other side of that wall, there was a court for Jewish women. So lots of walls, but at least all the Jews were worshiping on a level playing field, so to speak. But if you went down four steps from the court of the Jewish women and went across another platform and and went through another wall and then went down 15 more steps, you, you would come to the court of the Gentiles. There was a thick wall around the court of the Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile, you could go to Jerusalem and you could worship the one true God, but you would do it looking up at the temple, looking at all those Jewish worshipers up there. Separated by distance, separated by walls, separated by numerous steps. In fact, the wall around the court of the Gentiles was five feet thick and there was a sign posted on it. Trespassers will be executed. Just a side note here, Paul knew the seriousness with which Jews took that no trespassing business. Because on one occasion, you could read about this in the book of Acts, Paul had shown up in Jerusalem with a Gentile friend of his. And later in the week, Paul had gone to the temple. Now, as a Jewish man, he was allowed to go to the court of the Jewish men. But people who saw him there assumed, wrongly assumed, that he had brought his Gentile friend in with him. He hadn't. But they started a riot. They almost killed Paul. You see how Jewish laws, symbolized by the layout of the temple grounds, kept other people, Gentiles, at arm's length. Those laws were a relational wall. So how did Jesus bring it down? He became the fulfillment of all those laws. I mean, the the laws about sacrificing animals to pay for sins, Jesus did that when he died on the cross. 
taking the death that our sins deserve. The, the laws about choosing priests to act as intermediaries with God. You don't need an intermediary if you've surrendered your life to Jesus. Now you can go directly into the presence of a holy God as a sinful person because Jesus has paid for your sins. What about all those laws about circumcision and kosher diet and clothing that would mark you off as belonging to God's people? Well, Jesus says, now when you surrender your life to him, he sends the Holy Spirit to come live on the inside. That's the identifying mark that you're part of God's people, that you belong to him. See, when Jesus died on, on the cross, he not only made it possible for people to be reconciled to God, he also tore down the wall that separated Jews from Gentiles. Friends, this is what Jesus does when people surrender their lives to him today. You know, when you humble yourself before Almighty God and you consciously, deliberately say, Jesus, I want you to be the king, the savior of my life. If you've never done that, you could do that today when you do it. Jesus not only reconciles you with God, he tears down the walls that separate you from other people, including the wall of racism. Let me reread the second half of verse 15. Jesus' purpose, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility meaning their hostility toward one another. Someone has said the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Yeah, I like that. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. In other words, we, we all got to come to God the same way. We, we've got to humble ourselves. We've got to surrender our lives to Christ, and this should put an end to our racism. You know, those of us who are part of the, the majority race, which in our country means white folks, <laughs> we can't be acting like those first century Jews whose laws and temple set them apart from other people. Special. Now, that's the way it used to be for us in our culture. In fact, let me say just a word here about lingering white privilege, okay, about specialness. White privilege has been so ingrained in our culture for such a long time that those of us who are white, we don't even notice it. You know, we're like the fish who are unaware of the water that they happen to be swimming in. One of the two authors of the book, Being White, the book I recommended to you, she's, she's a white woman, but because of her marriage to a black man, she has two black kids. And she writes of, of white privilege with these words. She says, the partiality operates for me when I buy a house or a car, and it operates for me when I go to the neighborhood convenience store. It's interesting, as a white woman alone, I incite no interest. My checks are cashed without ID. I can wander around picking things up in a store. But when I bring my black children along... Suddenly, I look slightly less reliable. My ID is checked. My kids and I are watched. Sometimes we're followed around the store to make sure we're not shoplifting. I mean, the first time this happened, I brushed it off. The second and third, ninth and tenth time, I thought, oh, no, it's not possible. But it does happen consistently. See, she's talking about white privilege. 
Now, please understand, I'm not saying that this is something those of us who are white have to feel guilty about. In point of fact, there's very little we can do about it, but, but it's something we ought to be aware of. We ought to be aware of our culture's tendency to reward us with greater trust, greater privileges, greater esteem, greater opportunities just because we're white. And we ought to keep reminding ourselves, wait, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. You know, Jesus made it possible not only for us to be reconciled with God, but with each other. So let's take advantage of this opportunity. Let's underscore, emphasize reconciliation, reconciliation. You know, it's interesting, the half dozen books I read on, on, on racism, they all say the starting, starting point, if you want to combat it, is the very same starting point. First step, it's to meet. It's to encounter and become friends with a person of another race. That's it. If you're white, you find someone of color. If you're a person of color, maybe it's a, a white person, and you, you become buds, not just acquaintances, not, yeah, he works in the cubicle next to mine, you know, where she's in my math class, and it's become friends, friends who can talk openly about things like racism and get in each other's face on the topic. Undertake reconciliation. I wonder how many of us, as simple as that first step is, just encounter a person of a different race and become a friend, I wonder how many of us have actually done it. Understand alienation. Underscore reconciliation. Here's a third and, and final step. Undertake cooperation. The, uh, the authors of Being White, they offer up an analogy that, that really challenged me. They said, imagine, if you would, one of those moving sidewalks, like the kind that you see at the airport. Okay, now, in this case, the analogy is the moving sidewalk is our culture. And this, this culture is taking us in a direction toward racism. Okay, that's the default position of our culture. Now, there are three kinds of people on that moving sidewalk. So you see who you identify with. Okay, first of all, there are those who are actively moving in the same direction. They are taking steps, moving in the same direction of the sidewalk. So, so they're practicing discrimination in what they say and what they do and the jokes that they, they tell and that they laugh at and their attitudes toward people of different races and so on. Second group of people, and I suspect this is, this is the group that many of us can identify with, second group of people say, I don't want anything to do with racism. You know, I don't want to discriminate. I'm just going to stand still. I'm not going to walk forward. But when you stand still and the moving sidewalk is taking you in that direction, guess what? You're still headed there. You're still headed there. So there's a third group of people, and the third group of people say, I want to embrace God's plan A with respect to racism. And so they do a 180-degree about-face and move as quickly as they possibly can in the opposite direction. You get it? Good. Good. See, this, this is what Paul has in mind in the closing verses of today's text. He moves beyond mere reconciliation. You know, it's, it's not just a case of making friends. He wants us to become partners. He wants us to work alongside people of different races. And so he offers us not one, not two, but Three pictures of what it looks like when diverse people live and work together. Cooperation is what I'm calling it here. 
Let me pick up the passage. First picture is in verse 19. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. Now stop there. That's, that's the first picture. It's a picture of God's kingdom in which we are fellow citizens with other people, including people of different races. Now, interestingly, the Bible says that kingdom citizens... If we're citizens in Christ's kingdom, we're, we're on a, a mission. Our mission is to extend the boundaries of Christ's kingdom. Our mission is to extend the reign of King Jesus into the lives of others so they come to know him and serve him as their king, people of all races. So do you want to be part of that mission across racial lines? If, if you do, I'm going to get real practical here as we draw things to a close, some practical applications. You want to work alongside, you want to serve people of different races, some ways you could do it. Network of nations. Now, if, if you're in St. Charles or Bartlett or Blackberry Creek right now, you may not have heard of Network of Nations, but you DeKalb folks, you know about it. It's a ministry out in your neck of the woods. Every Friday night, international students from NIU are invited to a dinner and the students who come, about 100, who come on a weekly basis, they want to meet Americans. They want to talk English. So if you want to participate, you can. You just show up. You go online if you want more information. You can talk about whatever you want, including Jesus. Okay. Or here's another way to do it. You want to mix it up with people of another culture. This is a real icebreaker. Go on a go team trip. You go for seven days and serve people in Sierra Leone or Bangladesh or Brazil or you know, the places where we're working with international partners. And you'll come back and you'll see race in a totally different light. Or get involved in just about any one of our community impact ministries where we work in our local communities with people who are poor, who often are people of a different race from us. Go, go, go on a second Saturday. Get started that way. Okay, that's the first picture. We're citizens in a kingdom that's expanding as we bring the reign of Jesus to others. Back to Ephesians 2, middle of verse 19. This is the second picture Paul paints of our living and working in cooperation with others. It's the picture of God's family. The last line of the verse says, we are members of his household. So we're members of God's family. In other words, we're brothers and sisters with people of different races. And so the, the question becomes, how do we encourage these family ties, this family togetherness? Again, let me be real practical. You, you could start by practicing inclusion. Practicing inclusion. Start right here at Christ Community Church. 75 to 80% of our people are involved in a community group. I wonder how many of our groups are integrated. Just start inviting people of color. If you're in a white group, start inviting people of color into your group, whether they're people from work or from school that you invite to your house group or, or whether they're people you meet in the lobbies at our four campuses. Hey, you in a group? You want to be in my group? Love to have you in my group. You know, but you practice this inclusion in every area of life when it comes to your social calendar and having people over for dinner. If you're white, you look for people of color. If you're a person of color, you invite some white folks. 
Practice inclusion, if you're, if you're in charge of hiring some department at work, look for people of color. Inclusiveness. The second practical application I want to recommend has to do with injustice. You know, minorities today are raising the cry that they're being treated unjustly. This is constantly in the news. And I got to tell you, the knee-jerk reaction of most whites that, that, that I hear is to point out somewhat defensively the faults of these protest movements. And there, there, there are many faults. But if these are brothers and sisters, let's just say for a minute that, that they were literal family members who were being mistreated. If that were the case, wouldn't we do everything possible to make sure they get a fair hearing? Wouldn't we take the attitude, you don't mess with my family, wouldn't we? So what if we worked harder to understand the situation of minorities who complain about injustice? What if we protested injustice ourselves when we saw it? Now, I was emailing back and forth with a friend recently about the Black Lives Matter movement. And he wrote to me and he said, well, all lives matter, right? Isn't that the Christian position? It's not just black lives. Shouldn't that be our slogan? All lives matter. It sounds good. And again, with acknowledging that there are parts of this movement you know, that are wrong-headed, here was my response to my friend. I said, I, I think all lives matter misses the point. And I used an analogy. I said, I've got three kids. Let's suppose my youngest, my son Andrew, comes to me and he says, Dad, I don't feel like you love me. Don't feel like you care for me. You don't treat me as fairly as you do my sister's. Now, suppose I look at Andrew and say, I love all my kids. Is Andrew happy with that response? That general sort of response? But what does Andrew want to hear from me? He wants to hear, I love you, specifically you. What is it blacks need to hear from whites these days? They need to hear black lives matter. They need to hear black concerns matter. This was a cheering church. That would be a great point at which to cheer. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We're, we're citizens of God's kingdom together. We're brothers and sisters in God's family. So we care about family things. And then the third picture Paul paints is in verses 20 through 22. You know, we're building blocks in God's temple. It's a picture of God's temple. Let me read it to you. Verse 20. So we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, we sometimes refer to our bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's true. But Paul, Paul's speaking corporately here. Together, we're the temple of God. Individually, we're building blocks in that temple. And each one of us is a, you know, we're a different building block. There are differences of race, differences of gender, differences of life experience, differences of spiritual gifts and talents, differences in passions and interests. Every building block is different and every building block is important. 
Here at Christ Community Church, we need you to be part of the temple that, that God is building. We need you to be, please don't be a non-participant. You know, nothing more than a, a weekend attender. Don't settle for that. You know, contribute your uniqueness to what God is building here. Real practically, in just a minute, we're going to take an offering. You can contribute to what God is building here in a financial way. But right now, I'm saying in the gifts God's given you, in the areas in which you can, can participate, contribute your, your, your uniqueness, especially if you're a person of color. You know, our church is way too white. Can I say that? If you're a person of color, we need you. And white people, I recognize, you know, when you do a message on racism and you got a white pastor speaking to a mostly white group, there's a lot being aimed at, at white folks. But white, white people, we need to be inviting minority acquaintances of ours at school, in the neighborhood, at work, to Christ Community Church, going out of our way, affirmative action inviting, okay? Now, some people say with respect to race that we ought to be colorblind. Is that a good idea? Okay, if, if you're a woman and I come up to you and I say, you know, I don't look at you as a woman. I just look at you as a person. Would you be somewhat insulted? Wouldn't you look, look at me and say, Jim, I'm a woman. <laughs> okay. So, so let's not turn a blind eye to our differences. What do you do with differences? You celebrate them. What do you do with differences? You learn from them. What can I learn from those who are black or Hispanic or Korean or Native American from their culture? What can they learn from me, people of color? What can you learn from white folks? Diversity is a good thing. Diversity makes God's temple beautiful. It makes it ornate. It makes it attractive to the outside world who's looking at us. Understand alienation. Put yourself in that other person's shoes. You at one time were on the outside looking in, spiritually. So get it. Underscore reconciliation. Friendship. Christ has torn down the wall. Make a friend of someone of a different race. Undertake cooperation. Roll up your sleeves to be part of the building of the temple of God's Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to sing a song as we collect our, our gifts, a song about the kingship of Jesus overall. If you were here at the beginning of worship, that's how we began our worship today, celebrating the fact that Jesus is king over a kingdom that includes people of all races. We're going to sing about that, and then our pastors at each campus are going to close in prayer.